Welcome to this weekly audio digest edition of The National, from Monday the 3rd to Friday the 7th of December 2018. Read by volunteers at Cure Review, Prince Being to the Blind, at our studios in the Bishopriggs Media Centre. The headlines in part one. Four Tory MPs take food bank photo shoots to new level of poor taste. Huge death toll from work-related cancer revealed. Scottish parties unite to oppose the May's deal and no-deal options. Making the world a better place. Catalan prisoners on hunger strike to protest blockade of justice. This is why I won't vote for Theresa May's rotten Brexit deal. Letters. Who will explain fantasy economics of Brexit? RBS probes cronyism claims as top rule given to senior workers' friend. French police and violent clashes with protesters. Search for a missing teen continues. How can anyone still claim we're better together? Scott's MP slams Ministry of Defence over £14.8 billion black hole. New Chancellor of the Scottish University. Indiref 2 should not be decided by the UK's propaganda unit. Charity warns Scots that winter is deadly for asthma sufferers. The people's vote is a double-edged sword for Scotland. MI6 chief Alex Younger tells Russia not to underestimate UK. SNP MP hits out a DWP health report tampering. Nicola Sturgeon insists NDRF2 is the best way to win independence. Universal credit leads to £1.5 million in rent arrears in East Ayrshire. Edinburgh University develops solar lamp for low-income countries. This is an article from The National, 3rd of December 2018. Four Tory MPs take food bank photo shoots to new level of poor taste. These four Tories may have taken cake of food bank photo shoots to a whole new level of bad taste. Given the correlation between Tory electricity policies and a startling rise in food bank use, it's already a bit of a joke to see Tories giving food bank donations as a bid to regain some goodwill. However, if you are going to attempt to sidestep around the fact that your political party is responsible for the crisis that food banks are dealing with, the least you can do is take a time to write up your own reasons for donating. Four separate Scottish Tory MPs have taken a Twitter to seemingly show off their spontaneous decision to drop off a donation for the local food bank. Yet, on closer inspection, it appears that they have been operating on orders from Tory HQ, since each MP treated almost the exact same message. Moss Thompson, John Lamont and Christine Hare all began their message of support of the day I visited Tesco, while both Hare and Luke Graham round theirs off with encouragements for donating any lifelong food to your local store. Poor effort, folks. The National News, recorded on the 3rd of December 2018. Huge death toll from work-related cancer revealed by journalist Greg Russell. Work-related cancers kill more than 102,000 people in the European Union's 28 member states every year and cost up to 610 billion euros, 541 billion pounds, according to a new book. Cancer and Work, Understanding Occupational Cancers and Taking Action to Eliminate Them 
which is released tomorrow, has been written following more than 20 years of research by the European Trade Union Institutes, ETUI. And a Scottish occupational health expert has said it also raises questions for Scotland. Laurent Vogel, senior researcher at the ETUI and co-editor of the book, said, These cancers are morally unacceptable, as they could easily have been avoided for adequate prevention measures. His colleague, Tony Muzu, added, They are also unfair. Exposure to carcinogens at work are the cause of major social inequalities in health in Europe, as in the rest of the world. Labourers or nurses are much more likely to contract an occupational cancer than engineers or bankers. Indeed, a socio-occupational map can be drawn for the different types of cancer, tracing them back to these social inequalities. The link between cancer and working conditions has been well documented for more than two centuries, and several hundred carcinogens have been found to be present in workplaces. Levels of exposure are a major source of social inequalities in health, as an individual's risk of being diagnosed with a work-related cancer varies depending on the position he or she occupies in the social hierarchy. The incidence is much higher for cleaners or construction workers than for managerial staff, say the offers, adding that work-related cancers comprise 8% of all new cancer cases, 6-12% for men and 3-7% for women. Professor Andrew Watterson from the University of Stirling's Department of Health Sciences, who wrote a chapter for the book, told the National a look at the challenges of identifying interactions between chemical exposure and non-chemical exposures in work-related cancers. These could include multiple exposures and involve biological factors which may be influenced by management systems such as shift and night work and physical agents. Workers may come into contact with such carcinogens in several employment settings during their lifetime. Watterson said action was needed now to prevent the problem worsening. The book raises questions again about what can be done in Scotland to cut the human and economic costs of the occupational cancers. Actions should be linked to the need to sunset hazardous work, if possible, engage in toxic use reduction and adopt safer substitutes, as has been done so successfully in Massachusetts, USA. These ideas were floated with the Scottish Government over a decade ago and need to be adopted now. Scotland's NHS currently continues to have to pay for occupational cancers but still doesn't directly control the regulator who is responsible for preventing them. Westminster does that. In his chapter, Watterson highlights workers who are most at risk from occupational cancers. The most vulnerable workers may be those most likely to work with a large range of chemical, biological and physical agents that cause cancer. Possibly in the worst regulated employment sectors, where long hours, shifts including night work, poor health and safety management, and little or no inspection are the norm. Musu added that the cost of such cancers was borne by workers and their families, but also by employers and social security systems in the EU member states. He said that the solution to the issue lay with policymakers. It is high time that policymakers in Europe and around the world finally realised the extent of the problem and the massive impact of inaction in this area of occupational health and urgently adopt effective policies to prevent occupational cancers. By journalist Greg Russell. The Sunday National. Sunday, the 2nd of December 2018. Scottish parties unite to oppose the May's deal and no deal options. Holroyd vote on course as Blackford plans to take motion to Westminster. This article was by Karen Goodwin and Nan Spoart.
The SNP is planning to take the lead on ensuring Scotland's voices on Brexit as heard in Westminster in order to protect the people of Scotland from the damage caused by either Theresa May's proposed deal or no deal. It comes as a united front to be put forward by the Scottish Parliament by all parties in a joint motion to be debated on Wednesday which rejects both the no deal Brexit and May's compromise with the EU as damaging for Scotland and the nations and the regions of the UK. In a move seen as highly significant, Labour, Lib Dems and the Scottish Greens are to unite with the SNP to show their opposition to both options. The Tories have refused to join them. Now, the Sunday National understands that SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford, MP, will be putting down a Westminster motion in the coming days. It is expected to demand Scotland's collaborative voice and cross-party call from Scottish MSPs to reject both May's deal and No Deal and seek a better alternative. As heard by the UK Parliament, he is aiming for a cross-party support. One thing that is clear is that Westminster must respect the will of the Scottish people and the express wish of the Scottish Parliament. He told the Sunday National, We are trying to all we can ensure we don't end up with no deal. Our job is to protect the people of Scotland. It is time for Westminster to come together to say that this is not a binary choice. I am very keen that the SNP show leadership here and very happy to seize the opportunity for the Parliament to take back control. It was also time he claimed to ask Scottish Tories if they would join in supporting the people of Scotland. I'm grateful that there is a will for the parties to come together in Scotland over this. Now we need to question the Scottish Tories. Will they join us or will they continue to be Theresa's poodles? The Scottish debate falls talks between Labour Brexit spokesperson Neil Findlay, Lib Dem MSP Tavis Scott and Scottish Greens MSP Ross Greer and the Constitutional Relations Sec- Secretary Mike Russell. The motion is set to become formal position of the Scottish Parliament. A joint statement from four politicians said to debate will give the Scottish Parliament the opportunity to express its overwhelming opposition to both options and agree an alternative must be found. Russell, he was pleased to have reached an agreement which said no to the May deal, no to the no deal and yes to the constructive and creative work to ensure a better alternative. He added, I hope Westminster will follow where Holyrood leads. Scottish Greens Europe spokesperson Ross Greer, MSP, added Scotland didn't vote for this bad deal or a no deal and the UK government had have comprehensively ignored our voters, our parliament and our government. Theresa May's deal is headed for a defeat so all options must remain open including a people's vote and cancelling Brexit. Scottish Lib Dem leader Willie Rennie added the opposition expressed the motion to Theresa May's plan matches the growing mood against it in Scotland and the rest of the UK. But the Scottish Tories interim leader Jackson Carlaw said it was deeply regrettable they had chosen to stand shoulder to shoulder with the SNP on the issue. He added the European leaders have made it clear that the deal's only alternative is a no-deal Brexit. It would be devastating for Britain, yet that is what the SNP, Labour and Lib Dems and Greens are risking by opposing a deal on the table. The motion to go before Holyrood states, Parliament agrees that both the no-deal outcome 
and the outcomes arising from withdrawal agreement and the political declaration setting out the framework for the future relationship between the European Union and the United Kingdom as presented to the House of Commons by the Prime Minister would be damaging for Scotland and the UK as a whole and therefore recommends that they be rejected and that a better alternative be taken forward. This article is by Karen Goodwin and Nan Spoart. The Sunday National, Sunday the 2nd of December 2018. Opinion. Making the world a better place by Margaret Morrow. I believe we all have our roles to, to play in making the world a better place wherever we are located. From the small gestures we can take daily to help each other to the larger, more long-term programmes that come after years of work to lift people out of poverty. This is what my organisation, Mercy Corps, seeks to do in over 40 countries around the world. From our office in Scotland, every day, 50 team members support our humanitarian and development programmes in some of most of the difficult and insecure environments. These programmes include providing relief to Yemenis caught up in a civil war, working in partnership with business to offer entrepreneurial opportunities to young people in Kenya and Nigeria so they can make their way in the world and supporting communities to build resilience to climate change. We have a global outlook from our local base and while we work internationally, the statistic we're most proud of is that more than 87% of our team members around the world are local to where they live and work. We believe that local insight and knowledge will create the long-term sustainable change we are striving for. And partnering with our teams right here in Scotland is integral to that. Scot to that. Scotland's place in the world doesn't need to be defined by us being there, but rather in how we support others to create a more fair and equitable world, wherever it is needed, both at home and abroad. For Mercy Corps, this can mean working from. Of our offices in Leith, but standing up for someone across the world we, we we may never meet. Our community of humanitarians is a team of technical experts and specialists seeking to solve some of the world's toughest challenges. My team at Mercy Corps is responsible for supporting our field teams on budgeting, accounting and other financial functions to help ensure our funding is spent in accordance with Mercy Corps' internal internal policies as well as donor re- regulations. I am a management accountant and have also worked for both Lloyd's and Standard Life, doing finance, business par- partnering and commercial negotiations with uh, asset managers. Some might say that finance is the less interesting side of aid work, but we know that without responsible f- financial management and donor compliance programs would not be able to function and we as an organisation would not be able to secure follow-on funding. Furthermore and crucially our roles are are fundamental to ensuring that donors and supporters and the British taxpayers receive the best value for their money. 
My team is experienced in finance and accounting, speak multiple languages and will travel to countries for, for weeks at a time to support and build capacity, often at a moment's notice. Whatever our roles within Mercy Courts, we are united by a common purpose to offer hope where others see only desolation and encourage action to the face of indifference in the face of indifference. Scotland has a long history of standing side by side with vulnerable people around the world and with those who may have had fewer opportunities. We are proud that Mercy Corps is based here and that our community is committed to redressing the inequity of opportunity and believe that a better world is possible. This article is by Margaret Morrow. The Sunday National, Sunday the 2nd of December 2018. News. Catalan prisoners on hunger strike to protest blockade of justice. This is an exclusive article by Greg Russell. Two of Catalonia's political prisoners jailed for their part in last year's independence referendum have gone on indefinite hunger strike in protest to their forthcoming trials. Jordi Sanchez and Jordi Turrell made officials at Yadonos prison, north of Barcelona, aware of the protest yesterday as the first picture of the seven together in a prison courtyard was sent to select media outlets, including the Sunday National, by the pro-independence Omnium Cultural. Four of them have been in pre-trial detention for 13 months and the others since March. Two other female pro-indie figures are in a separate prison. In the photo, the seven men appear relaxed and despite their predicament in reasonably good spirits. In a statement released by Omnium, Sanchez, former head of the Catalan National Assembly, ANC, and Turul, who was Catalan minister for the presidency, denounced the blockade of European justice that Spain's constitutional court, CC, had imposed on them. Timely access to the courts without delay or unnecessary obstacles is a right that every person has, they said. Failure to exercise this right with full guarantees and in fair conditions can lead to irreparable damages and damages to fundamental rights. The cause investigated by the Spanish state on the referendum of October 1st evidences a lot of affectations on our fundamental rights, including the presumption of innocence, freedom, political rights and the rule of law, a judicial process with all due guarantees. They cite breaches of the European Convention on Human Rights and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and resolutions that the Supreme and National Courts had issued against them since the first pre-trial detention orders were issued. Our determination to have a fair, lawful trial is stronger than ever. We have not ceased to appeal all those violations of our rights that the Spanish courts have committed. But it is the international courts, and in particular the European Court of Human Rights, where today we deposit the trust to get justice. That route, they said, had been blocked by the CC, which had accepted their appeals to be processed later in order not to resolve any of them. They said, according to official data of the CC, the accepted number of appeals ranged between 1% and 1.5% of the total number of those presented. In our case, they are filed 100%. 
than forgotten in a drawer. The Spanish Legislation, Criminal Procedure Act and the Doctrine of the same Constitutional Court stipulate that the appeals against pre-trial detention orders must enjoy preferential processing and must be resolved within a maximum period of 30 days. The first appeal of constitutional protection of our fundamental rights accepted by the Constitutional Court against the pre-trial detention order decreed by the National Court was filed on November 22, 2017, more than 365 days ago. An unjustified delay, and more so if we keep in mind the records of quick resolutions resolved by the Constitutional Court in several occasions, where it has met even on a weekend, and only 24 hours after its intervention has been requested. Sanchez and Tilhul said they want an impartial and diligent CC, and will not passively accept any discrimination or unwarranted procrastination. We ask for the attention and support of all the democratic people of Catalonia, Spain, Europe and the world, they said. We invite you to preserve the civic and peaceful attitude that has made us so strong over these years. We urge the Smile Revolution to flourish through events that will continue to be celebrated in Catalonia in the coming days and weeks. And we ask for our hunger strike not to alter the spirit or celebration that these dates close to Christmas and New Year's Eve bring to the majority of us. This article is an exclusive by Greg Russell. The National. On Saturday, the 1st of December, 2018. Comments. This is why I won't vote for Theresa May's rotten Brexit deal. This article by Mary Black, MP and columnist. It's been another couple of nightmare weeks for Prime Minister Theresa May and her government. The government's biggest policy initiatives, or headaches as they've grown to be, are Brexit and universal credit, and both are being so spectacularly mismanaged that if they were not hurting the worst off in society so directly, you would have to laugh. Many of you will go through the same thought process that I go through every single time there's a new development with Brexit. It goes something like, no, surely not, to, I can't believe these people are in charge of the country during one of the biggest constitutional changes we'll ever live through, to, this has to be the thing that makes them see sense and stop this nonsense. And then repeat, with every breaking news alert. I thought it when David Cameron resigned after losing the referendum. I thought it when Theresa May stood at a podium last January and lectured the EU on why they're awful, but should also treat the UK with incredible reverence during the negotiations. I thought it after the countless cabinet resignations. And I thought it when the Prime Minister was humiliated in Salzburg. I went through those same thoughts again this week when the Chancellor of the Exchequer admitted that Brexit will make us poorer shortly before the Governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, announced the same thing. The Bank of England went further than the Chancellor, however, probably because they aren't trying to keep the Prime Minister in power, and admitted that under the Prime Minister's deal, under no deal, and under any situation other than remaining in the EU, the UK will be much poorer. These announcements didn't surprise anyone, however, because we can all see, even with the briefest of glances, that leaving the single market and customs union will have a huge detrimental impact on the economy. And despite all this, the Prime Minister continues to insist that her deal is the only solution to the Brexit problem that her party created. For people in Scotland, we have the lifeboat of independence. But saving that, there's also the option of taking the decision back to the people of the UK with a people's vote, with assurances that the Scottish result will be respected. 
Instead of following that path, the Prime Minister decided to hold a bunch of closed-off, invitation-only, heavily choreographed events across the UK and call it a tour to sell our deal to the people. The National, quite rightly, haven't covered the Prime Minister's visit to Scotland, and in fantastic fashion, I should add. But given that her office emailed me and advised me that she was coming to my constituency, I do think I need to mention it. About an hour, maybe two, before she arrived at Glasgow Airport, which is in Gavin Newland's constituency, I received an email advising me that the Prime Minister will be attending an event in my constituency, Paisley in Renfrewshire South. The Prime Minister never appeared, however, and just as the ink was drying on the missing posters, it turned out that she was in Bridge of Weir, which is a lovely village in Renfrewshire, but not in my constituency. Bridge of Weir is actually in Paisley in Renfrewshire North, where my SNP colleague Gavin Newlands is the MP. It's also worth noting that Glasgow Airport's also in Gavin's constituency. I assume the Prime Minister must also be making another stop later in the day within my constituency, but it seems she left Renfrewshire rather sharply. It's astounding to me that this Prime Minister was not aware that Renfrewshire has two constituencies, with two MPs. Then again, this is the same Prime Minister who can't answer a question from SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford without immediately dismissing the question and instead choosing to go into automatic bot mode, repeating her empty mantras about how precious the United Kingdom is. The Prime Minister is going to try and take this rotten deal all the way, with a vote in the House of Commons set to take place on December the 11th. I can assure you I will not be voting for the deal, and will instead be voting for the cross-party amendment submitted by Hilary Benn, which will stop the Prime Minister's deal and reject a no-deal Brexit. If the Prime Minister's deal doesn't get through Parliament, it's anybody's guess what happens next. But that's not reason enough for me to vote for a deal that will leave Scotland at an unjust advantage. This article was by Mary Black, columnist and MP. This is an article from The National. 3rd of December 2018. Letters. Who will explain the fantasy economics of Brexit? For main prominent Brexit, Nigel Farage should surely now be asked to explain this as his Fantasy League economics billion saved for this and that was clearly just a wish list. Malcolm Parkin, Kinross. The Scottish Government's latest version of Scotland's place in Europe is full of reasons why the May EU deal would be bad for Scotland, but it lacks its own political generation. It pins its faith on the UK staying in the single market customs union, something England will never accept, or a possible second EU referendum, which might produce the same result as the first, and would bind us to the result. The way forward for Scotland is surely to join the EEA as a self-governing territory, with the possibility of joining the EU later as an independent state, but we need to hold our own referendum on the various options and act on it as well, as a sovereign people. And if our sovereignty might be challenged, we need to reasset in a reversed calm of right, probably at the same time. Whatever the result of Brexit, our rights have been badly dented by the UK government in the process, and this must be addressed no later than the next Scottish election. Robert Fraser, Edinburgh The National News, recorded on the 3rd of December 2018. RBS probes cronyism claims as top role given to senior workers' friend by Emma O'Toole. 
Royal Bank of Scotland is investigating allegations of cronyism after a whistleblower claimed the lender appointed the man for a top rule on the basis that he is the friend of a senior staff member. A source within the bank said RBS is looking into complaints that a man appointed team leader on the troubled Amethyst project does not have the requisite qualifications or experience for the role and was given the job solely because he was friends with a head honcho. The move is said to have sparked fury among colleagues, with one saying on condition of anonymity, you would have at least level 4 financial planning, diploma certificate, to be a team leader, if not level 6. The fact is, he didn't even know what an OEIC, open-ended investment company, was when he started the project. You could not expect it to be a team leader without having this knowledge. There were times when his team wanted to challenge the decisions, but he had no knowledge and couldn't. It is also alleged that the man was paid nearly double that those with qualifications were aiming and, damningly, that more experienced and qualified staff were kicked off the project while he maintained his position. RBS Chief Executive Ross McEwen was made aware of the situation in July, but the whistleblower is understood to have raised concerns that the investigation is not being taken seriously and has been delayed. The bank said in a statement, RBS takes whistleblowing very seriously. The bank was made aware of a series of allegations in July and is investigating them thoroughly. No conclusions have been reached at this stage, but the appropriate action will be taken in the event that any of the allegations are outstanding. The Amfest project was set up to carry out complex investment reviews of ISAs, funds, bonds, pensions and tax planning products. The Financial Conduct Authority has rules in place that aim to stamp out nepotism and cronyism in the square mile, but it is unclear whether the city watchdog has been made aware of the situation. The RBS source added, it was another yes-man put in place for the project overall. With no experience of investments, he wouldn't even be offered one of the admin roles for the project in normal course of events. The damning revelations come just weeks after it was revealed that RBS was paying contractors £400 a day to stuff envelopes, typically a minimum wage rule. Under McEwen, the lender, still 62% owned by the government, has pledged to cut costs and stamp out scandals. Since the financial crisis, RBS has been dogged by furor surrounding the mis-selling of payment protection insurance, PPI, mortgage-backed securities and the mistreatment of small businesses. In addition, McEwen has taken an axe to the RBS branch network as part of cost-cutting measures, resulting in hundreds of job losses. The Financial Stability Board, FSB, removed a state-owned lender from the list of global systemically important banks that it started publishing after the 2008 financial crisis. By Emeroto. The Sunday National. Sunday, the 2nd of December 2018. News. French police and violent clashes with protesters. French police struggle to regain the upper hand against the violent yellow jackets protesters in the central Paris, resorting to water cannons to try and quell the demonstration. The protesters who are angry over the rising taxes and the high cost of living spread graffiti on the Arc de Triomphe, torched at least one car and broke through the metal fence of the Tuileries Garden. Central Paris was d- locked down with all roads leading from the Arc closed off as more police moved in. The police said yesterday more than 220 people have been arrested and at least 80 people had been injured, including 16 officers. Protesters, including some wearing black hoodies, Pelled up large plywood planks and other material in the middle of the street near the Arc de Triomphe before setting the debris on fire. But the police fired tear gas and used water cannon near the Arc 
Some demonstrators responded by throwing large rocks. Others removed the barriers protecting the tomb of the unknown soldier, which sits under the ark, posting near its eternal flame until they were dispersed by police. Paris Mayor Anne Hidalgo tweeted her indignation and deep sadness condemning any violence. Several hundred peaceful protesters called the Yellow Jackets on account of the fluorescent vest they wear passed through police checkpoints to reach Champs Elise. They marched on the famed avenue behind the big banner which read Macron stop taking us for stupid people. The clashes in Paris contrasted with the protests in other French regions where demonstrations and road blockades were largely peaceful. The protests which began with the motorists demonstrating against fuel tax hike now involves a broad range of demands related to the country's high cost of living. This article is unattributed. The National, Saturday the 1st of December 2018. News. Search for missing teen continues. This article is unattributed. Police are relying on a boots-on-the-ground approach as they comb challenging terrain in the search for a teenager missing for two weeks. Liam Smith, 16, was last captured on CCTV at Union Square in Aberdeen shortly before he boarded 2.02.1.15pm stagecoach bus on on Saturday, November 17, which would have taken him in in the direction of Bannerkey. It is believed he got off the bus at Craze and a subsequent credible sighting of him at uh, Craze Estate that that afternoon had led police to focus their search on that area. This article is unattributed. The Sunday National On Sunday, the 2nd of December 2018 Comment How can anyone still claim we're better together? This article by Andrew Tickell. Touring the country stirring up apathy. That's been Mission Theresa May this week. The road to Brexit apparently marches through the leather gear outlets of Bridge of Weir. With this indispensable constituency on side, losing the meaningful vote in the House of Commons is surely now inconceivable. But let's be wickedly cynical. Let's assume that May still has her work cut out in stitching together a Commons majority for her Brexit deal. As she hemorrhages support from both ends of her party, sheds ministers on a weekly basis, finds herself fankled in her own rhetoric and boxed in by EU concessions, what precisely is the Prime Minister up to? The Westminster snake pit continues to slither. Plenty of Tory arms and ears remain to be bent to get her Brexit policy through, and yet the Prime Minister's decided to spend her time moving like a grey blur across the British landscape, giving press conferences which amount to little more than a travelling book group for government press releases. The spin had it that Theresa May was appealing over the heads of her rebellious Tory colleagues to the plain people of Britain and their employers. The Prime Minister's warm, life-affirming version of meeting the public principally involves addressing baffled warehouses miles from the nearest human settlement. Time spent on a whistle-stop tour of Britain's rain-stained industrial estates and empty factories is time she isn't spending waterboarding her party colleagues in Westminster in the attempt to beg, borrow or steal their votes. Minnie McGlumfer, the jaded universal voter of Kilmacomb, may have considerable sympathy with the Prime Minister's position, but 
Many won't get the opportunity to trip through the Commons voting lobbies for or against May's deal. Maybe the Prime Minister's just glad of the opportunity to nip out of Whitehall for a gulp of fresh air. And who could blame her? Needless to say, the Prime Minister didn't take a dander down Scotland's high streets to soak up our Brexit atmosphere, instead pecking through press questions like an electrified macaw. Say what you will about the Prime Minister, her commitment to message discipline rivals the talking clock. Fling whatever questions you like at her, the line to take will be reliably spat out, however inconsistent it may be with the line she was spitting out last week. Prime Minister, will your deal pass the House of Commons? This is a good deal honouring the referendum result while safeguarding jobs in the economy of our precious union of our independent coastal state. Would you like a cup of tea, Prime Minister? This is a good deal honouring the referendum result. Repeat till you boke. By excluding the National from her press conference, she spared our political correspondent a commute. The Prime Minister's got nothing new to say. Gruesomely, the jams have given way to bobs on the Downing Street media grid that just about managing can go hang. As they ponder whether to vote through or veto the Prime Minister's Brexit deal, we're told that MPs should contemplate the will of Bob, the board of Brexit, and back the withdrawal agreement. Or as they're known in Cardiff and Aberystwyth, the Latootles. That is, L-T-W-T-L-S. The losing the will to lives. Mobilising the unpolitics of apathy is hardly new territory for the Tory party. A core plank of Ruth Davidson's Scottish Conservative line has been that politics is noisy, smelly and boring, and all you need do is pop a neat X in the Tory box for a quieter life and lower taxes. For many folk, engaging with politics is like going to the dentist, something you do occasionally and without much pleasure. These are Theresa May's people. But May's plan to sweep to victory on a sluggish sea of bobs seems radically misconceived. The Prime Minister hopes to G up the jaded, mobilising the zonked behind her deal, stirring the passions of the dispassionate and rousing the sensibilities of the politically insensible. She'll squash internal dissent and throw together a coalition of the willing in the House of Commons. The obvious catch with this political master plan may be dawning on you. The Prime Minister's scheme seems to rely on political slouches, suddenly becoming a hive of activity. I suspect May's going to find out that her bobs are ABBAs, angry but basically apathetic, who'll exert very limited pressure on her recalcitrant colleagues, whether they're appalled by Brexit's economic vista or European research group truthers who've been droning on about Brussels red tape and escaping from the EUSSR since the 1980s. Last weekend I gave you the downbeat assessment of what all this means for Scottish independence. The harder the Brexit, the harder the rethinking that will be necessary. Having been through righteous anger, coldly rational melancholy, the third panel in my Brexit triptych is a case for very qualified optimism from a Scottish nationalist perspective. The first derives from one of the neglected characteristics of the deal May's proposing. Although the chances of the Prime Minister's deal passing the Commons at the first attempt seems remote, it's eminently plausible that some version of it will represent the final accord with the EU on a second heave, as the country teeters on the brink of tumbling off a cliff on March 29, 2019, and the fear sets in. Writing in the Telegraph this weekend, resigning Universities Minister Sam Jima lamented that at the end of these negotiations, Britain will not be standing side by side with our European partners as equals, arguing we'll be outside the room when key decisions affecting our future and prosperity are made. It's a democratic deficit and a loss of sovereignty the public will rightly never accept. 
From an SNP perspective, Jima's analysis of the implications of the deal begin to frame a very clear case for Scottish independence within Europe, shifting the argument from defensive to offensive territory. On the Tory party's own terms, an independent Scotland would face a choice to be a European rule-taker in Britain or a rule-maker in Brussels with a seat at the table from which the UK has chosen to exclude itself. In 2014, the European dimension of the independence debate focused on whether or not an independent Scotland could automatically accede to the Union and whether European citizenship rights could be jeopardised. If, as seems likely, independent Scotland will emerge from a United Kingdom which is outside of the European Union, some questions will remain about whether and how an independent Scotland might become a full member of the EU. But, gum away as they might, one of Better Together's key messages from 2014 has been brutally defanged. And a key constituency, EU nationals living in Scotland, can now see painfully clearly how the governments in Edinburgh and London see them. More fundamentally, the social basis for the No campaign lies in ruins. There'll always be die-hard doormat unionists whose response to assume the position is, and always will be, thank you sir, may I have another? Though the UK government do anything they think no ill, but the overwhelming majority of Scots aren't masochists of that stripe. They've got a better conceit of themselves. In the Times this week, Hugo Rifkind argued, I know handfuls of other Scots, if not scores, who found their instinctive unionism fleeting from the heart to the head after the Brexit referendum, and not always staying put there. The core non-economic argument made against Scottish independence by the likes of me, that Scotland and England were similar nations full of similar people who wanted similar things, often feel coldly ludicrous. It's a column to provoke cold sweats. It's all very well to argue that now is not the time for independence, but when the time comes, what's the argument for this union beyond the aridly contractual? Better together, how now? This article was by Andrew Tickell. That's the end of part one. After the break, we'll be back with more great articles from The National. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of eight, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk and remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Q&Review Review channels. Now, back to the main programme. Remember, this Weekly Digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qnreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and weekly digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme. Visually impaired people are being invited to see if they are eligible for a free, specially adapted radio from a charity. The British Wireless for the Blind Fund, BWBF, provides the equipment to those with sight loss around the UK who meet its criteria. 
Radio is a lifeline to those who are blind and partially sighted, providing companionship and helping them to keep in touch with what's going on in the world, as well as in the local community. BWBF offers equipment free of charge to those who have sight loss and are in receipt of a means-tested benefit. BWBF is launching its Reaching Out campaign to try and increase awareness about their equipment and help more people who are blind and partially sighted. Our regional development manager, Sophie Weldon, said, Our radios are designed so that a person with sight loss can use them easily and independently. All equipment is delivered to the home by a volunteer who sets it all up and provides support in using it. We offer a range of equipment, digital radios, CD players, memory stick players, internet radio and even a specially designed app. Our radios are vital to someone who cannot see. They provide news, information and entertainment, but also, more importantly, companionship and a friendly service. If you or someone you know is interested in a BWBF radio, please contact Sophie Weldon at sophie at blind.org.uk. That is S-O-P-H-I-E at B-L-I-N-D dot org dot UK or phone 01283 790 That's 0123 to find out more about the British Wireless for the Blind Fund, follow us on Twitter at British Wireless, like us on Facebook, or go to blind.org.uk. Now, back to the main programme. Q and Review Print Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. We're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in Eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from the Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. If you would like to volunteer and become an access to audio ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141 772 3976 or email aaatl at qandreview.com. That's aaatl at qandreview.com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141 772 3976 or email information at qandreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at qandreview.com. Thank you. Now, back to the main programme. Welcome back. The headlines in part two. The National. Politics. Recorded on the 5th of December 2018. Scottish MP slams Ministry of Defence over a £14.8 billion black hole. By journalist Greg Russell. A Scots MP has said the Ministry of Defence, MOD, cannot ignore the fact that its equipment plan is holds beneath the water after the National Audit Office, NAO, deemed a worst-case scenario gap of £14.8 billion was optimistic. Dunfermline and West Fife MP Douglas Chapman was speaking after he co-chaired an evidence session of the Public Accounts Committee, PAC, which highlighted another hole in the project budget. The committee, which scrutinises the value for money of public spending, grilled MOD witnesses as part of its annual inquiry into the latest version of the government's 10-year equipment plan. In its report, the NAO said the MOD forecasts 
183.3 billion pounds on equipment and support costs against a 186.4 billion pound budget, including a 6.2 billion pound contingency. Chapman said the annual report concludes that the UK's defence equipment plan remains unaffordable. This can only mean that projects will have to be cut back, delayed or cancelled altogether. Yet the Ministry of Defence witnesses today could not tell us where these cuts will fall. For the MOD to be straight with the public, we need to see the government's modernising defence programme, which was promised last January, then again, before summer recess and here we are. Almost a year on, still waiting for direction from the top of government. We need to see exactly what capabilities the government is prepared to sacrifice in order to fill the gaping black hole in its defence budget. I press the witnesses to seek reassurances that their safety and security is not at risk due to the inability of the MOD to budget effectively. I remain unconvinced that this is the case. The MOD can no longer ignore the fact that their equipment plan is frankly holes beneath the waterline unless they cut equipment programmes out altogether. Don't take on any more projects or get more cash from HM Treasury. They need to set up and take heed of the NAO's recommendations and finally produce a plan that is within the realms of possibility, protects jobs in the supply chain and allows industry to deliver off confidence. By journalist Greg Russell. The National, Saturday, the 1st of December 2018. New Chancellor of the Scottish University. Former First Minister Jack McConnell has returned to the university where he once studied to serve as its new Chancellor. Lord McConnell's said Stirling University always had a special place in his heart as he was appointed to the role. The politician who was a Scottish Labour leader and the first minister of Scotland between 2001 and seven, succeeds broadcaster James Naughty who stood down earlier this year after a decade. The Chancellor acts as the ceremonial head of the university. This article is unattributed. The National on Monday the 3rd of December 2018. Comment. Indiref 2 should not be decided by the UK's propaganda unit. This article by George Keravan, columnist. By a bit of serendipity, I had been planning to write about the British Army's mysterious and highly controversial 77th Brigade, which specialises in offensive media and psychological warfare. However, a journalist from Russia's Channel One television, Timur Shirajev, got there before me and ran a piece in his news programme. His story was perfectly innocuous and perfectly legitimate. It was watched by some 250 million viewers in Russia and around the world, so hardly a secret. It's what's happened next that's fascinating. Shirajev had filmed his piece to camera in the street outside the Berkshire Army base that houses 77th Brigade operations. Every day of the week, BBC News reporters do similar pieces to camera in locations all over the world, including Moscow. But that's not how Sirijev's journalism was explained by the Ministry of Defence, or its pliant UK media hacks. Instead, there were screaming tabloid headlines about Russian TV spies trying to infiltrate Britain's secret cyber warfare HQ. Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson even went so far as to issue a call to the British public to report any suspicious activity near other military sites. Can you imagine how the UK government and media would respond if the Kremlin issued a similar warning to Russian people if a BBC reporter did a story outside the GRUHQ in Moscow, next to the Polyshevskaya metro station? 
The weekend's scary headlines about Sherezhev's investigation are in stark contrast to the way the MOD has studiously ignored Western reporters examining the shady activities of the 77th. For instance, a major piece published only last month in Wired, the main US magazine devoted to high technology. The Wired story is captioned, Inside the British Army's Secret Information Warfare Machine. In fact, the writer, Carl Miller, had literally been invited inside 77th Brigade's Secret HQ, which he describes in detail. He wrote, One room was focused on understanding audiences, the makeup, demographics and habits of the people they wanted to reach. Another was more analytical, focusing on creating attitude and sentiment awareness from large sets of social media data. Another was full of officers producing video and audio content. So, why is the MOD all in a tizzy about Serizhev's piece? Because, for once, 77th Brigade has lost control of the narrative covering its existence. Hence the almost hysterical response designed to make it look as if the Russian journalists were spying. This is a bid to divert the story toward Russia, and away from the 77th Brigade itself. For military wonks, the name 77th Brigade is the stuff of romantic legend. It was the formal designation of the famous Chindits that operated behind Japanese lines in Burma during World War II. The Chindits were created by the charismatic, though unstable, Orde Wingate, a romantic insubordinate figure in the mould of Lawrence of Arabia. Wingate, an ardent Zionist, first conceived the idea of special forces operating behind enemy lines during his posting to British-controlled Palestine in the 1930s. There he led commando units composed of members of the Haganah, a Jewish armed group. These commandos operated at night, ambushing Arab saboteurs and raiding Arab villages. The military effectiveness of Wingate's Chindits in Burma has been questioned in recent years, but the Chindit legend is still powerful enough that the name 77th Brigade was revived in January 2015 and applied to a new unit of the British Army. The name's a dead giveaway. The 77th Brigade is not a bunch of techies advising on cyber security. This is a military formation designed to take warfare behind the designated enemy's psychological, media and cultural front lines. In short, the 77th Brigade is about Orwellian mind control. The dangers are obvious. Who decides truth in any future conflict? And who decides the geographical, ideological and political boundaries involved? In modern propaganda wars, the front line doesn't start in Moscow. It starts in London, in Glasgow and Cardiff. Who is vetting where and how the 77th Brigade is active? What civilian oversight exists to control a military organisation that deliberately chose Orde Wingate's unconventional, highly politicised special forces as its exemplar? What do we know about the 77th Brigade? Let me quote a written MOD parliamentary answer published in March 2015. The Brigade exists to provide support, in conjunction with other government agencies, to efforts to build stability overseas and to wider defence diplomacy and overseas engagement. That's a highly political rather than military remit. The parliamentary answer then goes on to say the brigade is leading on special influence methods, including providing information on activities, key leader engagement, operations security and media engagement. Note the phrase special influence methods, which is straight out of Orwell's 1984. And note the reference to media engagement. Since when has the British Army had a legitimate role in trying to influence the media? And here we come to a truly insidious aspect of the 77th Brigade. It has a complement of around 440 dedicated personnel, according to the parliamentary answer. 
Under the Army's new organisational doctrine, units combine both full-time soldiers and territorial reservists. The 77th Brigade recruits its reservists from among UTA journalists and professionals in advertising and public relations company. We're not just talking computer and information technology specialists, but media practitioners. The result is the necessary boundaries between the military and civilian media have been compromised. And this represents a potential threat to democratic norms. I've no doubt that Russians are actively interfering in Western elections and referendums using social media. But I'm also against the British state and British military using the Kremlin as an excuse to create their own Orwellian propaganda machine. Of course, the British security services have always made use of tame journalists and the BBC. But we're living in a new age, where the domination of our thoughts, conversations, viewing habits and consumption patterns by electronic media is near universal. I don't want the military having an unchecked role in shaping this media landscape. In any future Scottish independence referendum, will the 77th Brigade be neutral, or will it see the Yes campaign as a threat to national security? If Russia floods Scottish Twitter accounts with messages designed to skew the result, will the 77th respond to protect the constitutional status quo? Just who will the 77th be reporting to? What special influence methods will it deploy or advise on? Perhaps SNP MPs should ask some questions in Parliament before it's too late. Am I being paranoid? Well, we already know the UK has launched offensive cyber propaganda attacks against regimes it didn't like. In 2013, the US whistleblower Edward Snowden leaked documents on how GCHQ, Britain's Signals Intelligence Agency, attacked other countries, including one against democratic Argentina in 2009, aimed at protecting UK control in the Falklands, the so-called Operation Quito. The 77th Brigade unit badge is that of the old Chindits, a mythical Burmese beast called the Chinte. Representations of the Chinte were to be found at the entrances of temples to ward off danger. So, who's going to protect us from the 77th Brigade and its foreign clones? This article was by George Kerevan, columnist. The National News recorded on the 4th of December 2018. Charity warns Scots that winter is deadly for asthma sufferers by journalist Greg Russell. Winter can be deadly for asthma sufferers and a charity has warned that thousands of Scots could face being hospitalised through a life-threatening attack. Asthma UK said cold weather, colds and flu or even dust from putting on central heating could all lead to an attack. The charity analysed hospital statistics from the last five years and predicted that an estimated 2,000 people in Scotland could end up in hospital this winter. It also revealed that almost half of asthma deaths in the UK happen over the winter months, claiming 45 lives in Scotland last year. As the NHS faces increasing pressure with growing demand for services and staff shortages, Asthma UK is urging people with the condition to follow simple tips to stay well this winter. It said it also wanted people to understand when they do need to seek urgent medical help. If asthma symptoms are so severe that people need to use their blue reliever inhaler three more more times each week, it's a sign that an asthma attack could be imminent, and they should visit a doctor or nurse urgently. People with asthma have sensitive airways, and when they come into contact with winter triggers, such as plunging temperatures, colds and flu and mold, it causes their airways to become more inflamed and tighten, which causes coughing, wheezing, and leaving them struggling to breathe. One woman who has first-hand experience of winter playing havoc with her symptoms is Karen Peacock, a customer service manager from Paisley. 
The 47-year-old was hospitalised last December with an asthma attack after picking up a virus. She said, I'd been for a Christmas dinner with friends, but when I got home I felt my chest tighten, like it was a vice, and I started gasping for breath. I managed to get myself to hospital, where doctors told me I was having a life-threatening asthma attack. I had to breathe through a mask and stay in hospital for six days. When it's winter, you accept you might get a cold or a virus, but I never expected it to trigger something more deadly like an asthma attack. Looking back, I realised I had the warning signs that an asthma attack was imminent, and I was using my reliever inhaler almost every day. Dr Andy Whittemore, clinical leader at Asthma UK and a practising GP, added, Winter is the deadliest season for people with asthma, with plummeting temperatures and colds and flu, putting them at greater risk of being hospitalised for a life-threatening asthma attack. By journalist Greg Russell. The National, on Tuesday, the 4th of December 2018. Comments. The People's Vote is a double-edged sword for Scotland. This article by Cat Boyd, columnist. I don't judge how people voted in the EU referendum. I'm still guilty of indecisiveness myself. As I've said before, in a real vote on the EU, I'm for leave. If voting on the social attitudes of the respective campaigns, I'd vote remain. The mainstream debate forces you, in essence, to choose between xenophobic nationalism and neoliberal globalisation that gives rise to xenophobic nationalism. Clinton or Trump, remain or leave, crisis now or crisis in five years... This is the blackmail imposed on our whole global political debate. Brexit is just one angle on it. Generally, I'm fully in favour of one-sidedness. But which side are we on here? The truth is, we had a side, but thanks to the Remain campaign, we're losing it. The radical left is being co-opted by corporate globalisation. The Scottish independence movement by the old neoliberal leadership of the British state, which is organising through the People's Vote campaign. It's important to be clear about what's really at stake. It's a fascinating geopolitical event. And yes, it has real consequences, but ultimately I don't want to belong to Britain, so my emotional involvement is inherently limited. What worries me is that elements of the radical left will abandon their critical faculties so readily, will lose sight of the failings of globalisation, will make uncritical alliances with the people who brought us varying hardship. The riots in France last week offer further proof that simply rebooting EU-style neoliberalism will not work. We need a break with globalisation to the left, otherwise a break to the right is inevitable. None of that negates the awfulness of Brexiteers or the clownishness of negotiations, but let's get a sense of proportion. The Brexiteers are a subordinate faction of the British elite, the dominant faction are Remainers. Yet, despite its dominance in most sectors of the UK elite, the people's vote isn't guaranteed victory. It faces three huge hurdles. First, like anything else, can it secure a majority in current deadlocked Parliament? Second, agreeing on the terms of the referendum. The Remain campaign's made no efforts on this front. Third, and no small matter, you've got to win a dirty campaign. Despite endless propaganda, opinions have barely shifted since 2016. If anything, older people have died, younger voters have replaced them. Maybe that's enough for a Remain majority. Even then, it'll never be enough to solve the democratic deficit any return to the EU would impose on British politics. And that all assumes Remain wins. If they lose again, Brexiteers will rule the UK for the foreseeable future. But let's just say everything goes to plan. Let's say they clear every hurdle. It's hardly unlikely, given that almost every previous vote against the EU has been ignored or overturned by ruling groups. 
In the event of no general election come 2020, the people have opted for Remain. Politically, who wins? It would be a massive victory for the old-fashioned centrists in British politics. But what about the recent insurgent movements? For obvious reasons, the right-wing populace would be enormously strengthened, victimised, forced into principled opposition, claiming to speak for 17 million voters overthrown by an unprincipled elite. For Rees-Mogg, Johnson, Farage and Tommy Robinson, that's far better than the humdrum responsibilities of administering trade deals. It casts them in a role they'll relish. Scotland could be one winner, measured by superficial numbers. The status quo would be restored, reflecting the wishes of 62% of voters, perhaps more today. But those of us who believe that Scottish independence is the only solution to Scotland's democratic deficit, this is less obviously a victory. A people's vote not only establishes an ugly precedent, it also plunges Scotland into an indefinite political darkness, as the ruling blocs in British politics tear each other to shreds. I've written about the precedent problem before. I'm far from alone in raising the problem. By signing up to the people's vote, Nicola Sturgeon has conceded that the sovereignty of a referendum is revocable if public opinion sways or markets panic due to the difficulties of negotiating a trade deal. And let's remember in this case, despite years of Tory blundering, actual public opinions barely shifted at all. And despite Osborne's promises, markets didn't immediately crash on the day of Brexit. Scottish independence might face a harsher environment. The second vote principle gives the successor state every incentive to block, mock, humiliate, sabotage and ultimately impose an awful deal. The EU's Brexit negotiating stance shows how this can be done and the British state will have learned those lessons the hard way. Unless independence won a referendum with an overwhelming majority, say 60%, we'd be constantly menaced by the people's vote precedent. The second problem is that a people's vote puts Scottish politics at the mercy of events in Westminster, with the narrative dominated by inter-elite clashes and Scotland sidelined completely. Negotiating a people's vote is no easier than negotiating Brexit. First we've got a Tory leadership election, and that'll be a bloodbath, not a cakewalk. If it goes badly, Brexiteers get to set the agenda for what the vote will look like. If it goes well, you still face a gridlock parliament. Brexiteers will block at every turn. They'll dispute every point, quibble every paragraph and impose every humiliation. Anyone who imagines this concluding in weeks hasn't been paying attention. Meanwhile, they'll need to extend Article 50 by at least a year, assuming the EU states agree to that. Allow many months for negotiations, followed by extended campaigning period agreeable to both sides. At current speeds, the chances of finalising all this in a year are limited. Even then, you've got the aftermath of any vote and the inevitable battle for meaning. If Remain wins, renegotiating entry. If Leave wins again, equally likely, we're back to square one. Negotiate another deal entirely or prepare for no deal. Those battles will rage. During that period, nobody's talking about Scottish independence. We're forced instead into sham unity with the old neoliberal bloc of British politics to fend off even uglier statements coming from the Farages of the world who'll be savouring every minute, win or lose. As this drags on, the SNP's opportunity for an independence vote slips away. Even in the unlikely circumstance that the people's vote is over in a few months, we miss any opportunity for a referendum in the lifetime of this parliament. Instead, we've got to return to the public and ask for a new mandate. However, by this point, the public have had nearly a decade of divisive referendums. Regardless of their feelings about the British elite, are they ready for another one? 
Sturgeon's best case scenario is that by 2020, Scotland remains in the EU. Of course, then, her biggest argument for independence has disappeared, but on the other hand, she'll have earned kudos from Middle Scotland for putting the national interest first. However, we've then got to worry about our own petard. We've just spent four years arguing that there's never an economic argument for breaking with your biggest trading partner. Unionists will only be too eager to remind us that our biggest trading partner is England. We've then got to convince a referendum-weary public that independence is worth the risk after winning people to an argument that breaking trading blocks and geopolitical alliances always ends in disaster. I can't see a happy outcome. It makes no sense to sign up to a campaign representing one faction, the dominant faction, of Britain's ruling political and economic elite. If you still believe that Scotland's best interests are served by independence, then you mustn't forget what that's for. Right now we're being puppeteered by the perpetrators of Iraq and austerity, the very people who plunged Britain into this dark age in the first place. This article was by Cat Boyd. The National News Recorded on the 4th of December 2018 MI6 Chief Alex Younger tells Russia not to underestimate UK from the National News Desk. The head of MI6 has warned Russia and other rogue states not to underestimate the UK's determination in a rare public speech. Speaking at St Andrews University on Monday, Intelligence Chief Alex Younger warned of threats from enemies who regard themselves as being in a state of perpetual confrontation. He said the UK needs to adjust to a new political reality as power, money and politics is going east. The chief of the Secret Intelligence Service said sources to threats to national security were getting more complicated. He said, you can see where this is going. It's getting more complicated. Power, money and politics is going east. In that respect, we find ourselves as a prize taker in places where we might have been a prize maker in the past. That's a new political reality that we need to adjust to. He singled out Russia and the flagrant hostile act of the Salisbury nerve agent attack, adding MI6 will no longer take the state by its word. He said, Mr Sergei Skripal came to the UK in an American brokered exchange having been pardoned by the President of Russia and to the extent that we assumed that had meaning. That is not an assumption we will make again. Younger described how MI6 helped expose the perpetrators said to be behind the attack and how it helped coordinate the expulsion of Russian diplomats. He said, Our intentions for the Russian state to conclude that whatever benefits it thinks it's occurring from this activity, they are not worth the risks. I urge Russia or any other state intent on subverting our way of life not to underestimate our determination. Younger also said he was perplexed by the jailing of a British academic for spying in the United Arab Emirates. Matthew Hedges was freed last week after a high-profile battle with the Gulf State ally, but officials persisted in calling him an MI6 spy, a claim denied by family and colleagues. Younger said there will be frank conversations with the UAE over the incident. He said, I genuinely don't understand how our Emirates partners came to the conclusions they came to. They are important partners of ours, so I think there are some frank conversations ahead of us. From the National News Desk. The National News. Recorded on the 4th of December, 2018. SNP MP hits out a DWP health report tampering by journalist Greg Russell. A Scots MP has said there is still no transparency on audits carried out by the Department for Work and Pensions DWP staff on the health assessment reports for personal independence payment, PIP claims. 
Maddie and Fellows, the SNP MP from Motherwell and Bushaw, was speaking after she met Disability Minister Sarah Newton, who told her that auditors could only recommend any changes to the health report to staff from the Independent Assessment Service, IAS. The audits came under scrutiny earlier this year after one of the MP's constituents appealed against the decision on his PIP claim and was accidentally sent the original and audited reports of his face-to-face health assessment, which are carried out by IAS. Fellow said every section of the original report, where a constituent scored points, was reduced to zero by the auditor. Had the report not been audited, the constituent would have been entitled to a standard rate of the daily living component worth £57.30 per week. However, despite Newton's assurance on recommendations, Fellow said she had received a letter from the IAS which said the auditor has the authority to overrule report justifications and had instructed for changes to be made. Fellows said audits are still shrouded in secrecy as ministers and IAS contradict each other over the power of auditors and people are barred from seeing reports of how DWP staff are tampering with their claims. IAS have contradicted the minister by confirming that auditors do not merely provide recommendations but they are instructing changes and overturning the reports of health professionals when auditors weren't even in the room. Not content with devising a welfare regime of cuts, hurdles and rigged health assessments, the DWB is directly tampering with IES reports. A DWP spokesperson said the assessments had to be consistent, adding both providers are working for the same legislative framework and criteria, which introduces a more objective, consistent assessment. The department are closely monitoring and auditing assessments to ensure quality and consistency. The department does not routinely provide the audits of reports, as these can contain personal information about members of staff and claimants. By journalist Greg Russell. The National Politics Recorded on the 4th of December 2018 Nicola Sturgeon insists NDRF2 is the best way to win independence. By journalist Kathleen Nutt. Nicola Sturgeon insisted last night that the best way to achieve independence for Scotland is via a referendum. It was reported that the weekend that senior SNP figures had been floating the possibility of an alternative path if Theresa May continues to refuse to grant a Section 30 order, which would allow another vote to take place. It was suggested that, in the absence of NDRF2, the SNP winning a majority of MPs in Scotland in the general election could be itself enough of a trigger to begin negotiation on leaving the UK. But the First Minister said last night that there remained SNP policy that the way to achieve independence was through another referendum. She told BBC Radio Scotland on the question of a referendum, it is SNP policy, it continues to be SNP policy, and the route to independence is through a referendum. That is for good reason. That is the way to pass the test any vote of that nature has to pass. A chance for people to unambiguously express a majority view for independence in a process that is legitimate and would be accepted. Now I can understand why people in the SNP get frustrated when they hear a Tory government that the majority didn't vote for in Scotland saying no to that. But of course, the way to get over that is to build support for independence to a level where no Tory government can stand in its way. The comments echo her previous praise for the 2014 independence referendum as the gold standard which should be used in any future vote. Sturgeon also said she would give her view on the timing of another referendum once the House of Commons had come through the Brexit process. Over the weekend, Keith Brown, the SNP deputy leader, and Ian Blackford, the SNP Westminster leader, suggested their party would not accept a refusal by May or another Prime Minister to grant a Section 30 order. 
Writing in the Sunday National, Brown said the SNP said the wider independence movement is, by definition, committed to the idea of self-determination. We can never submit to the idea that this right to self-determination can be vetoed. Brown did not spell out what the plan B might look like. However, an unnamed senior SNP parliamentarian told the Sunday Times, we may have to look at alternative expressions of the national will. We can go forward other than through a Section 30 order. Under no circumstances will we do anything illegal. If illegality was a route, Catalonia would be independent. The comment followed remarks by Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell that Labour would reject a deal with the SNP on a new referendum in exchange for supporting a minority Labour government. Last month, the First Minister raised what course of action was possible if a Section 30 order request was refused. She told a Women for Independence conference that in that case, she may ask Scots to decide on the issue in the next election. She said, All of this has taken me to the point that I don't have the easy answer to this. We may get into the situation where the UK government says, No, we're not going to agree the Section 30 order. And I think if that happens, we need to rise above that. We need to make the case of how unreasonable that is. And ultimately, the only way through that is to take that to an election to say, No, we'll have absolutely our right to choose. I think that's maybe what we will take. SNP MP Joanna Cherry said in October independence could be achieved for a democratic event rather than a referendum. But Mary Hunter, an SNP councillor in Glasgow, hit out. She tweeted, Before people start arguing about whether there are alternatives to winning a referendum to start the independence process, in my view there isn't. There are two key points to consider. One, there is not yet a majority for independence, and two, a referendum is SNP policy. By journalist Kathleen Nutt. The National Politics Recorded on the 4th of December 2018 Universal credit leads to £1.5 million in rent arrears in East Ayrshire. By journalist Andrew Learmonth. Universal credit has pushed council house tenants into nearly £1.5 million of rent arrears in East Ayrshire. Council tenant overdue rent stood at £1.484 million between September the 17th and October the 14th this year. About 7% of tenants had unpaid rent during that time, up from 5% last year. People are falling behind in their rent while they await their first universal credit payment. The problem was revealed in the Council's Governance and Scrutiny Committee meeting this week. Committee Chair Councillor Barry Douglas said, We are seeing rent and council tax arrears going up. It is impacting the Council. The Council are trying to mitigate, but we need support from the Scottish Government. The Labour and Cooperative Party Councillor added, It is a completely flawed policy. It is hitting the poorest and most vulnerable in our society. It is not saving any money. It is costing more money. He said the council are trying to give people advice on setting up bank accounts, using the internet and coping with fuel and food poverty. Rubbish party councillor Sally Cogley said universal credit is something everybody is extremely concerned about in East Ayrshire. We have been anticipating the issues and made provision for it. The council has set up a project team to help residents transfer to the new system, which merges six benefits. It warned there can be problems making a claim and receiving the first monthly payment. There are fears some people may not even have a bank account to get the payment. The council team offers advice on budgeting and work alongside the Department of Work and Pensions to help people get the payment. The Trussell Trust figures show food bank use has jumped by 52% in the areas where universal credit has been introduced. By journalist Andrew Learmonth. The National News, recorded on the 4th of December 2018. 
Edinburgh University developed solar lamp for low-income countries by journalist Greg Russell. Families in low-income or developing countries who have no access to mains electricity could benefit from a solar-powered, sustainable lamp developed by a Scottish university. Researchers at the University of Edinburgh have built the solar watt from recycled plastics and ethically sourced electronic components. The device is powered by widely available mobile phone batteries, which can be replaced with non-specialist tools and charged from a range of second-hand solar modules. It was designed by the university's School of Social and Political Science in partnership with Edinburgh-based design agency, Kurimisi, to promote responsible production and reduce electronic waste in the solar energy industry. The lamp could help address emerging challenges around electronic and plastic waste, say researchers, particularly in areas such as sub-Saharan Africa and South Asian countries where demand is high. The University of Edinburgh has signed on an agreement with international charity SolarAid to support the development of the solar watt and promote sustainability in the off-grid solar industry. The first batch of devices will be made available to school children and their families in Zambia early next year. Dr Jamie Cross of Edinburgh University's School of Social and Political Science, who led the research and helped design the device, said, When solar things break down in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, People try to fix them. Solar-powered lighting devices that cannot be fixed are effectively disposable technologies. The solution to electronic solar waste lies in designing products that can be easily repaired. When solar-powered devices can be taken apart and repaired locally, they reduce electronic waste and provide clean energy for longer. Repair should be as important as sunlight in a responsible and sustainable solar industry. By journalist Greg Russell. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The National. This weekly talking newspaper digest was a Q&Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q&Review and the producer was Jordan Duncan. Q&Review Recording Service Limited is a registered Scottish charity. Number SC018016. Our registered office is at 18 Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow, G641QY. Remember, you can always get in contact with us by email at information at qandreview.com or by leaving us a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976.